Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18. Uh, Months ago, I'd kind of put out a preaching uh, calendar and schedule for our team. And uh, I had planned uh, in my mind to preach on Luke 19, on the triumphal entry on this, this Palm Sunday. And so our team was kind of planning towards that. And I think they were a bit surprised when uh, they learned uh, last night that I'm preaching for 1 Samuel 18. They didn't do anything wrong. I just forgot. Um, you, you know, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but you, you drive a certain way every day. So I have a certain way I go to the church every day, literally every day. And then every now and then, Faithful and I will get in the car and we're going to go somewhere else. And I just start driving towards the church. You know, like my mind is programmed. Well, this past week, my mind's programmed. I just look at the next passage in 1 Samuel and I just start reading and I start studying. And uh, I went to 1 Samuel 18 and completely forgot about what I'd planned to do. So uh, your pastor is a knucklehead. That's what you get out of that. Um, I uh, forget like everybody else. I forget a lot more than most people. But thank you for being gracious with, me, with you uh, and with me. I, I'm so grateful to be here at Reach Church DeSoto. This is an incredible blessing. Um, uh, one of my hopes and one of my prayers as we look to do live stream preaching is that I would still have the opportunity to be in front of uh, all of our congregations live and in person and to be able to look in the faces of the people that I preach to. And so I'm really grateful. It's amazing the technology that God gives us, the ability to do this and to be here. And uh, so I, I want to welcome everybody that's joined us to be our live stream and everybody at Lenexa Baptist, both in the sanctuary and in the venue service. Thank you, all of you, for, for being here today. And don't forget, I know you know this, but this week, uh, don't be forgetful like me. we got a lot going on this week. Um, we will have some noon services every day at Lenexa Baptist in the sanctuary. About, we'll start about 1210. We'll go about 1250. That way, if you're coming from work or going back to work, you got a little time to get there. We'll do that Monday through Thursday. Those services are going to be live streamed, so you don't have to come in. But I will encourage you, if you're able to come in, I think you'll get a blessing from it. We're going to look at uh, the last week of Jesus' life here on earth, um, that, that Passion Week. We'll look at what he experienced on Monday, Tuesday. It's kind of, it puts it in perspective for us. And then, then Friday, Good Friday, there'll be a Good Friday service right here at Reach Soto at 7 p.m. We're going to have a re, uh, Good Friday service at Lenexa. We're going to have that in both the sanctuary and the venue service. So um, we're expecting a large crowd. And I want to encourage you to, to make plans. Be a part of a Good Friday service, whether it's here at Reach Church or back at Lenexa. Make plans. You really can't appreciate the resurrection on Sunday until you contemplate the death on, on Friday. And it's a communion service. It's really neat for us to be together as a family of faith and, and partake of communion on that day in which we get, we get together for the whole purpose of remembering Christ's sacrificial death, substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. So please, please make, make plans to, to be a part of that. Well, we, we turn our attention to, to 1 Samuel 18, and, and, and you can imagine, just kind of catch you up to speed where we're at. David um, just been, been following God. He's been shepherding. Um, all of a sudden, this guy named Samuel shows up, anoints him. He's going to be king. Um, he just goes back to shepherding. He doesn't know what's going on. He gets called out one day to go check on his brothers. There's this giant. He's not planning for greatness that day. He didn't wake up expecting to encounter a Goliath. He's just being faithful. He just, here's a young man. The motto of David's life, as we study through this, you're going to hear me say this a lot. The motto of David's life is, I'll be who God wants me to be when God wants me to be it. David's attitude is humble submission wherever he's at. You want to know a good model for life, just be faithful. You don't have to plan. You don't have to manipulate circumstances to somehow get where you want to go. You just have to be faithful. Don't you love the way that God's ordained that? You just, you just be faithful. God is in control. He'll guide your life. 
And so, so David's just being faithful. But then in that moment, he's thrust into that moment. And God's been preparing him with the lion and the bear and shepherding. And all of a sudden, he just kind of comes into full bloom. He's achieved this great, great victory. And, and, and we looked at it last week. Jonathan is like, man, this guy, I love this guy. It's, he just recognizes there's something about this guy. He lays down his life. You're going to be the heir apparent. You're going to be the next king. And and we're going to see, as we saw a little bit last week, that the, the, the women are singing about him. He's gotten an upgrade. He got a promotion. Everything is going his way. And he's just been faithful. And I think David's like, this is how it works, man. Your faith was good, man. Your God comes, and it comes through, and it starts going great. And then all of a sudden this week, it's like the rug will just get pulled out from underneath him. So he's doing everything right. He's being faithful in every way. And then all of a sudden... Circumstances are getting incredibly difficult. There's a bounty out on his head. Persecution will be the, the, the normative experience of his life for, for the next three years. And yet in all of that, what we're going to see is that David will prosper. For the Lord's sake, regardless of how difficult the circumstances get, from an earthly perspective, there's nobody that can look at David's life and say, yeah, I understand why the guy is happy. There's none of that. Vocationally, he's getting demoted. Um, in his home life, it's not going to be great. In every area, it's going to look like his life is detrimental, and yet he'll flourish. On the other hand, we're going to see another guy, because God often teaches us through comparison and contrast, but you're going to see Saul. And Saul, from an earthly perspective, you say he's got everything. He's got, he's got the, the, the goods. He's got the job. He's a king. He's got everything. And yet you'll find a guy who's continually on a downward trajectory. He'll have envy in his heart. He will be insecure. He's afraid of everybody. He will not have hope. He will not have joy. Anger will define his life. What is the difference between these two men? The difference is God. Dave is a man who is walking in fellowship with God, while Saul is a man who is not walking in fellowship with God. And listen, this is what we need to know. If there's one truth I want you to understand is that our ability to prosper as Christians, not in the things of the world, but in the things that matter, is not dependent upon our circumstances. That we don't follow God, as I like to say, on the basis of the perks. We don't follow God for the goodies. We follow God because he's God. God will not have a people who simply have what I like to call an interest-bearing faith. There's a lot of Christians out there, they say, God, I'll follow you and I'll read my Bible, and I'll go to church, and I'll give, and I'll do all these things as long as you do, as long as you jump through the hoops that I want you to jump through. And God says, I want to know, will you follow me even when you don't get the goodies? You remember Job? Have you, have you seen my guy Job? Well, he only follows you because he's got a lot of prosperity. Well, take it all away, and we'll see. And God wants a group of people who will walk by faith and not by sight, that you will trust in God's word and you will trust in his promises when, when his present circumstances in your life are painful and sometimes detrimental, will you still trust him? That's what we're going to see in David. Well, let's pray together, then we'll walk, work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word today, and God, it is so relevant. I'm reminded as we study these things, I've been reminded this week how relevant these things are in my own life. God, I know you've been working in me, teaching me to trust you, teaching me to love you, teaching me to praise you, even when, when things don't go the way I'd like them to go. 
And God, it's just this reminder that you have written these things for our benefit. These are not just ancient stories. These were written to bolster and encourage us in the midst of the circumstances of our life. And God, I know as we gather today, there's somebody, they're watching online, they're at LBC, or maybe they're right here in DeSoto, and they're going through some junk. And they're thinking of throwing in the towel. In fact, if they were honest today, they're getting mad at you, God, because you're not showing up in the way that they would like you to. God, I pray that they would be encouraged today that all we really need is to know that you're with us. And to trust in your promise that no matter how difficult the circumstances, all of our pain and all of our difficulty in this world is temporary. Because one day we'll see you face to face. Lord, encourage us today, wherever we're at. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me. We're going to back up a little bit and look in verse 7. So they're coming back, kind of a ticker tape parade going on, uh, coming back from the battle that, that, that David has just won over Goliath and the Philistines. In the verse 7, the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And so they're singing this song. Notice this about this song. It's not a song of faith. Uh, This is not a song praising God. If you look at some of the the great songs of victory, even Deborah's song in the book of Judges, it's praising God for his wonderful victory. Even it it was David who said when he uh, stood before Goliath, you're not coming really against me, but you're standing against the Lord of hosts. It's about God, but here they're not praising God. It's a reminder that the culture in which David existed was not a culture of faith. It was not conducive to trusting God. It was not conducive. Oftentimes, we as believers, we're swimming uphill, and we can, we can start to get a little discouraged when we think, we're, well, well, Lord, we're the only one. There's nobody else around us. Well, that was David. It was not a conducive environment to trusting in God. So they're praising David. They're praising Saul when in reality, who won the victory? It was God. We know that. It was God who did it. But they're praising Saul. They're praising David. And they're saying about Saul one thing and David another. And there's some conjecture about the Hebrew poetry and how they really, there's no intention here to say that one is greater than the other. What they're really saying is they both killed a whole lot of people. Isn't it awesome? I mean, what does it matter if you've killed 10,000 or 1,000? You've killed a lot of people. You're a great warrior. But Saul doesn't interpret it that way. Saul, in his mind, it's that, that, that proverb that says, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Saul is not walking in fellowship with God. And listen to me, when you're not walking in fellowship with God, you're always insecure. Um, especially when you've got some hidden area of sin in your life, you're always worried that somebody's going to find out. You're always worried that person's going to find out about you. So that's kind of Saul's mindset. Somebody's trying to get him. He has insecurity. There's no humility. There's no trust in God. He's insecure. And so now he begins to look at David as an enemy. Remember, David has made him successful. David has made the nation successful. And David has no intention of trying to usurp his authority or his power. We're going to see that continually throughout David's life. But Saul, because of the sinfulness of his own heart, is going to see him as an enemy. And so it says in verse 9, Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. So now it begins. Now the persecution, uh, now the injustice against uh, David will begin. And I would love to tell you that it's just going to happen in chapter 18. But it's going to be 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. It's going to go on and on and on. This is going to be the normative experience for David's life for the next several years years. Not just once a week, not just a couple times a year. This will be his daily experience of the guy above him trying to kill him. 
Some of you think you've got bad bosses, all right? David, he takes the cake. Nobody's got it worse than him. We'll look at verse 10. Now, it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp uh, with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. So this evil spirit from God, uh, this lying spirit comes upon Saul um, and lies to him about the nature of David. Interesting here. Uh, this lying spirit is going to tell Saul that David is your enemy and not your friend. Uh, it's a reminder that, that state, Satan still loves to lie to us about great kings from Bethlehem, doesn't he? That they're not the king of kings, they're not your savior, they're not your lord, they're your enemy. And so here is this lying spirit telling you that David's your enemy. And, and, and Saul, is, uh, Saul is walking around with a spear in his hand, which would make me a little nervous. Uh, the guy is depressed, he's never in a great mood, and he's walking around with a spear. But David is there uh, uh, playing the harp, and, uh, and, and, and he doesn't like David very much. Uh, what's interesting, too, about this is David goes back to playing the harp for Saul. Now, I just think about this from, from David's perspective. If I had been to David, I'm like, I'm, I'm a commander. I'm, I'm a general now. I don't still play the harp for the king when he's in a bad mood. You know, that's, that's below me. I've elevated myself beyond that. But again, the one thing that you see in David's heart is he will just simply submit to whatever God puts in front of him. God, if you want me to go play the harp for the king, I'm going to be the best harp player the king has ever seen. Remember this. You'll see this in David's life. This is something you've got to remember over and over again. Bloom where you're planted. You can't always, you, you can't always determine what circumstances you find yourself in, but you can determine how you respond to those circumstances. And so many people, when the circumstances get tough, they just bail out. They just leave. They try to flee from that circumstances. And, and by doing that, I feel like so many times we miss out on what God wants, us to te- wants to teach us in the midst of those difficult circumstances. So David's just going to bloom right where he's planted. He's going to be the best heart player he can possibly be. And in verse 11, Saul hurled the spear, uh, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David escaped from his presence twice. So he's got the spear in his hand. Uh, he sees David and says, well, I think I'll just end this right now. I'll rid the guy who's a threat to my kingdom. And so he thrusts the spear at Saul, and he misses him. And the way I think about this in my mind is, uh, you know, David's a, probably a pretty uh, shifty guy, you know, a little wiry, small guy, but, but probably pretty shifty. But the guy's just playing the harp in the room. Sounds like pretty pro- close proximity. He's got this big old spear, and Saul is uh, a pretty impressive warrior. You would think that would be a pretty easy target. You know, you would think surely this guy can take out David with a spear in a small room who's playing the harp, but he misses. And, and I do think there's a powerful picture here because you remember we're just off the heels of a battle where David took a small rock and he will sling it at Goliath. And we know that there was probably only a very small area of vulnerability to, to Goliath's armor. And yet David will throw that rock or sling that rock and it will hit the perfect place and it will take him out. And yet Saul, who's a great warrior, can't hit a guitar player in the same room. And uh, I think the picture there is, listen, when you're following God, when you're with God... When you're walking with God, he can make very difficult targets easy. But when you're walking out of fellowship with God, he can make very simple targets incredibly difficult. And so the difference all throughout this comparison and contrast is a man who's with God and a man who's rejected God. 
And so he misses. Isn't it interesting, too? He escaped twice. <laughs> that makes me scratch my head. Because if it had happened to me the first time, I'd say, I'm out. You know, I don't want the job anymore. You're going to have to find somebody else. Um, I didn't sign up for this. The insurance plan's not great. I'm out, you know. But he goes back. Just the submission of David, just to go back. I'm going to play again. And he evaded him twice. One other thing. We, we can't camp out here too long. But David escapes Meaning David ran. He had to run out of the room or he had to run in some fashion. I, David does not strike me as a guy who ran very often, like ran from people. He ran to the battle line. He ran to the lion. He ran to the bear. But now he is running. Why does he run here? He runs because he knows the word of God has said, you don't touch God's anointed. That's what you're going to find with David. In every way, he's submissive to the word of God. The one thing that will drive David's... Don't you think that everything in David's heart said, this Saul guy's trying to take me out. I'm a pretty good warrior myself. I think I'll just kill him. I'm God's anointed, and we'll end this on the other end really quickly, and then I'll just become king. And yet he will deny his flesh. He will beat his body and make it his slave so that he would not disqualify himself for the work that God has called him to do. You do not have to backstab and manipulate to prosper where God has placed you. You just have to be faithful. And so David, he's not going to try to manipulate or undercut God's work. I'm just going to be faithful. He escapes twice. Now verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. And there you see really the crux of the passage. The difference between these two guys is God is with David and God is not with Saul. And you cannot live in outright rejection and rebellion of God and expect for everything to go your way. Um, and so here is a man. There's, there's consequences to rejecting and, uh, God and rebelling against his word. Verse 13, therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before uh, the people. So um, you're going to see Saul in every way possible is going to try to undercut David. He is going to do this on about six different occasions. He's going to try to demote him. He's going to try to deceive him. He's going to try to trick him. And he'll try to kill him. Later on, you're going to get to chapter 19. He's just going to put a bounty out on his head. He's going to say, I don't care who you are. I don't care what the circumstances. Just take this guy out. I want him dead. So he now begins to manipulate circumstances. And he gives a public demotion. This would have been a very public thing. He's going to be an ordinary commander over a thousand people. And yet it says David keeps coming in and out of the people. Meaning he keeps going out to battle. And he has victory. And he comes back. So what does it say in verse 14? David was prospering in all his ways for what? That's the phrase, for the Lord was with him. God is with this guy. So it doesn't matter what you do to him. It doesn't matter. It's like Joseph in jail. Fine, you put me in jail, I'll just prosper in the jail. I'll become the best of the prisoners. They'll start handing the keys to me. I'll run the deal. Doesn't matter where you place him, he will prosper because God is with him. This is Psalm 1, blessed man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates both day and night, and he'll become like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. It means he have deep roots, won't be moved by storms. His leaf will not wither in whatever he does, he prospers. Not prosperity in the things of the world, but it just simply means wherever you go, you can't get this guy down. He just keeps popping back up. He just keeps loving the Lord and serving him faithfully wherever you place him. Verse 15, when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. It's like the more this guy prospers, the more angry Saul gets. 
this, it, it kind of struck me throughout this too. This is an area where we as Christians can sometimes have difficulty. We don't mind crying with people when they're hurting. But we will sometimes have difficulty rejoicing with people when they're blessed by God. Listen, if you can't rejoice with a brother or sister in Christ when God, uh, when things go well for them, then you need to check your own heart. We need to be able to rejoice. We mourn, we grieve with those who grieve. We rejoice with those who rejoice. That's what the body of Christ does, regardless of what we're going through. And uh, so Saul struggles that. The more God blesses him, the more angry he gets. Verse 16, but all Israel and Judah loved David. And he went out and came, he came in before them. It doesn't matter how mad he, he gets at this guy, no matter how much he tries to undercut him, this guy just, everybody loves him. His son Jonathan loves him. The nation loves him. The women are singing about him. It doesn't matter what he tries to do. Everybody loves this guy. And it's a reminder to me, the most beautiful, attractive people in the world are humble servants of God. The most, I tell this to young people all the time. You want to be attractive? You want to be an attractive young man or woman? Be a servant that has the joy of Christ in your heart. I can guarantee you, your best friends in this room, the people that you love the most, that if you had a day to spend with a few people, you would pick these people and you would pick them because they're humble servants who have joy in their heart regardless of the circumstances. And that's David. So he's just going to keep flourishing in the things of God. Um, listen, look at verse 17. Then Saul said to David, here's my older daughter Merib. I'll give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battle. For Saul thought, my hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So you can have, and, and the rumor was, if you defeat Goliath, what? You'll get my daughter. And so here, I'm, I guess I'm going to follow through on this, but I'm going to use it to my advantage. Now I'll have a little bit more, even, even a little more control over his life. And I'll send him out to fight against the Philistines. And I won't have to kill him. The Philistines will kill him. They'll do my job for me. I'll send him to the front lines and this will get him killed. But what does David do? David said to Saul, who am I? What's my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? David just, he kills him with kindness and humility. And this is not self-deprecation. I don't think this is David lying. David truly, genuinely felt, listen, I don't deserve this. I mean, isn't that, there's an understanding with David, God owes me nothing. I don't deserve anything. And it really, the, 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 if we're not careful as Christians, we, we, we begin to have an entitlement mentality that God owes us something. We have to be so careful about this. And it's so easy to see in other people's life, but it's sometimes difficult to see in our own life. But if we're not careful, we'll start fading into a mentality. God, you know, I, I, I've been pretty good for you. You know, I've, I've shown up to church three Sundays in a row, and it wasn't even my favorite thing to do. And the sermon wasn't even that good. And I sat through the whole thing. I took notes. I read my Bible three times this week. I even gave. I put a little in, you know, Lord, come on. Now I'm expecting you to come through on this deal. I'm expecting you to show up. I, I didn't get that job promotion. I'm holding up my end of the bargain. Where are you at on yours? And we start fading into that mentality. And I love the fact that David never, never got to a place where grace went sour in his life. You, you, you see people with grace go sour. They get so far removed from the moment of salvation that they th start to think that they're pretty good and somehow they earned it instead of receiving it by, by grace through faith. 
And David just never got there. In fact, there's some commentators who believe that David, part of the reason he says, I can't, be, I can't marry in the royal line because he didn't have uh, pure Israelite blood. Because you remember the whole book of Ruth is written to remind us that he has an ancestor who's Moabite. Uh, but it's written to show us the faithfulness of Ruth so we'd know more about his line and ultimately the line of Jesus. But, but David's like, I, I can't do this. And again, you see his humility, just trusting how many of us? I mean, he said, sure, you know, single guy, get married in the royal family. Sounds good to me. I think I'll take it. And David's like, no, I can't. Not, not because he's being self-deprecating, because he ultimately trusts in God and he doesn't want to do anything wrong. He wants to be holy and blameless. Well, uh, it says in verse 19, so it came about that time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. Verse 20, now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul, the, the thing was, was agreeable to him. So now his daughter loves David. And, and Saul says, well, that sounds good. Maybe, maybe he'll, he'll marry Michael. In verse 21, Saul thought, I'll give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David, for a second time, you may be my son-in-law today. So here you go, another opportunity to marry into the royal line. Verse 22, then Saul commanded his servants, speak to David secretly, saying, behold, the king delights in you. All his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. Come on, everybody loves you. Everybody wants you to do this. Everybody wants you to be a part of the royal family. Will you do this? Verse 23, so Saul's servant spoke to David, but David said, is it, a tr- is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? You see, once again, just a humble attitude. I, I'm, not, I'm not worthy of this. The servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemy. Now Saul planned to make uh, David fall by the hand of Philistines. So in essence, Saul is saying to David, listen, I understand you don't feel like you're worthy. Well, here's the way you can can feel good about this. Just bring me the the foreskins of a hundred Philistines. And we're not going to get into great detail of this. You're probably going to eat lunch later, and we don't need to do that to you. Um, but, but the idea here is this was incredibly insulting to the Philistine army. I mean, you want to really be disrespectful to the Philistine army, this was a way to do it. And this is very intentional on Saul's part. It's not just about killing 100 Philistines. I want the whole Philistine army to hate David from Bethlehem. I don't want to just bring 100. And I think there is a thought that maybe one out of 100 of these guys could kill him. Maybe we'll get one guy who can do it. But more than that, the heart of Saul is, I want the entire Philistine army to hate this guy. I want them to put a bounty on his head. I want them to take him out. And remember, what's interesting about this is later on in David's life, David will employ the same strategy against Uriah the Hittite. You remember that? When David uh, has adultery with Bathsheba, and she conceives, and uh, so he brings Uriah home, and Uriah will not sleep with with Bathsheba. He's going to be faithful to God and faithful to his men. And so David's like, i got to do something. So he sends him back to battle, tells the commander, put him on the front lines, and we'll kill him. We'll just rid ourselves of this guy. And he sends a note with him. And Uriah was so faithful, he wouldn't even open the note. Now, here, this again is a good reminder that the difference between David and Saul is not that Saul was a worse sinner than David. The difference is that David will repent of his sin and Saul won't. 
Um, so uh, here, Saul, I'm going to use this against him. Well, what will happen? Uh, verse 26, when his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the days had expired, David rose up and went. He and his men struck down 200 men amongst the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, for a wife. Can you imagine the amazement when he comes back with not just 100, 200? This guy is unbelievable. You can't keep this guy down. God is with him. And then it says in verse 28, when Saul uh, saw and knew, there it is again, that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. This is what's amazing to me throughout this passage. There is an understanding with Saul that's what, that what's making the difference in David's life is the fact that God is with him. And I think there's also an understanding in Saul's life that the reason that's not going well for me is because God is not with me. But what I can't figure out is why Saul wouldn't repent of his sins and turn to God so that God would be with him again. But he won't. He's obstinate towards the Lord. He just grows more and more embittered. It's why I tell people all the time, listen, if you hear God, there had to be a moment in Saul's heart. I don't know if it was back in chapter 13 or 14, but there had to be a moment in Saul's heart where God began to work in his heart to draw him back to repent. And Saul hardened his heart to the grace of God. And listen to me, we see this happen in so many people's lives. You can get to a place where you so harden your heart to the grace of God that it's not that God quits speaking, but that your heart becomes so callous that you can no longer hear him. And it's almost as if that's happening in Saul's heart. He's so hardened himself to the grace of God that he's just like concrete. And he's just stuck and he continues to rebel against God. Verse 30, then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. You know what else David's got? Because he delights himself in God and in his law, he's got wisdom. Wisdom that enables him to walk successfully through whatever uh, situations God puts him in, and the people recognize it. You remember, it's like Daniel in the midst of Babel, the Babylonian experience. The difference that Daniel had and his buddies had was that they had the word of God. They had wisdom from God, and it enabled them to live differently, and not just to live differently, but to live better. And that is David, and everybody's recognizing it. There's something different about this guy. And what's different about him is that God is with him and, and he is with God and he has the wisdom of God. And so no matter how difficult the circumstances get, he prospers. Now this is so critical for all of us to hear. This is, this is one of those lessons if you're walking with the Lord, you've got to get. Because if it's not happened to you, it will happen to you. That you'll get to a place where you're walking with God and you're seeking to walk in fellowship and you're seeking to walk in faithfulness and God will not come through in the way in which you want him to come through and you're going to have an opportunity in the midst of that to either grow bitter towards God and mad at God or grow closer to God and trust God that he can prosper you despite the circumstances. How many of us know somebody in our life that when, um, man, they were walking with God and they're doing pretty good, maybe they're a newer believer. 
I mean, I got somebody in my life right now that I'm discipling, and I just love this guy, and, and he, he's starting to follow God, and he's, but he's following God, and, and, and it feels like on a lot of days as I talk to him that the circumstances of his life are actually getting worse. And it's so easy, and I'm praying for him, that in the midst of that, he won't grow bitter towards God, but that he'll draw closer to God, that God might prosper him, knowing that we don't follow God on the basis of what he gives us. We follow God because of who he is and what he's done through Jesus Christ. As we saw last week with with Jonathan, who gives all of himself in service to David, recognizing him as God's anointed, we recognize who Christ is, and we give all of our life to him, and we don't always know what God is doing in the midst of the circumstances, but we trust him, knowing that God is good, and all pain in this world is, is temporary. And so we have to learn, listen, you have to learn to be governed, not by your flesh, not by your feelings, and not even by the circumstances of your life, but you have to determine in your heart that I am going to follow God and I'm going to trust his promises regardless of what this world throws at me. And you have to set it in your heart early because it is a weak person who only follows God when God gives them what they want. What do we say about a child that throws a fit when the parent doesn't automatically give them what they want. We call them a spoiled brat. And there's a lot of spoiled Christians. And I have seen Christians get mad at God for some of the funniest things you've ever heard. And you think, do you understand what God did for you? Do you understand who God is? Um, my favorite story about this uh, many of you know Corey Tinboon, who served the Lord in the midst of the concentration camps. She had a sister named Betsy. And uh, Betsy was an incredibly godly woman. In fact, Corey would just speak with her about her in high regard in her autobiography. They were placed at one point in solitary confinement so that they couldn't see each other for an extended period of time. And Corey had prayed at some point, Lord, let me just see my sister again. And, and finally, at some point, she got to go to her sister's cell, her, her, her room where she was staying, just this little, little room with just a little hole that let in some sunlight. And she, she, they opened the door so she could see her sister. And she looked in and she just started laughing because her sister had taken some of her clothes, her, out, her shirts, her long sleeves, and she had kind of hung them up in the room and where the light shined in, and it all, she'd almost turned the cell into like a little bed and breakfast. And uh, she just thought, man, this is, that's Betsy. She's just going to bloom wherever you place her. Well, they, they went into these, these shacks that they stayed in, these little barracks, horrible conditions, and somehow they were able to smuggle in a little gospel New Testament. And, and, uh, and, and they took that and they would, they would try to arrange it so that the guards wouldn't see them. And they, it just, they were always kind of amazed. The guards never really came in or messed with them. And they would just open the word of God and they would read the word of God. And many in the midst of those horribles, they're just starving to death and incredible filth. They, but they would share the gospel. It became a light to these people and many came to faith in Christ. But one of the things that they, in fact, Corey says is the part of it that just, of all the things, the one thing that's just like so frustrating is that they had bed bugs. 
And Betsy at one point told Corey, we're going to praise God for the bed bugs. And Corey said, I'll praise God for a lot of things. I am not praising God for bed bugs. And Betsy said, we're going to praise God for the bed bugs. Later on, they found out that the reason that the guards wouldn't come into their barracks was because of what? Bedbugs. That God was guarding two faithful women with an army of bedbugs. Don't you ever think that you can't bloom and prosper right where you are. Your ability to bloom is not based on your circumstances. It's not based on the, kind, the house you live in. Do you know when Paul says that God gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding? It means it's a peace that's not based on the size of our bank account. It's not even on the basis of our health. Meaning you can't say, well, somebody can look at you, well, I know why you're good because you, you make good money and you live in a nice house and your health is good. No, we, we have a peace that surpasses those things. And it's on the basis of our faith in God and our relationship with him and knowing. And isn't it good? All that we really, here's what I need to know in the midst of whatever I'm facing. I don't need to know a lot of things and God doesn't tell me a lot of things. But the one thing I need to know is that God is with me. And when you know that God is with you, we can get through anything, can't we? And then ultimately we know what? That all pain and suffering in this world is temporary. It's not eternal. Our light and momentary affliction is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that's far beyond all comparison. Remember, mourning only lasts for the night. Joy comes in the morning. And final thing, when you get to the point where you're about to give in and you say, I can't take no more, remind yourself of Jesus. Because the only one who could truly complain was the one who is the perfect son of God, who was faithful to God in every way, and yet he was strapped on a, on a cross with nails in his hands and a crown of thorn on his head, not for what he had done, but for what you had done. And yet he would pray for his executioners. He would lead a man to faith, and he'd take care of his mama. That's what you call blooming. If Jesus can bloom on a cross, I think you can bloom right where you're at. All you need to know is that God is with you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks so relevantly to us. God, I don't know where everybody's at today. I don't know what the circumstances of their life are today. Um, it could be that there's some watching online in this room, Lenexa Baptist, in the venue service, they don't know you. And maybe they've been searching for joy and fulfillment, satisfaction in the things of this earth. I pray that they would know today we're all broken and we're looking for something to fix us. And there's nothing in this world. There's no stuff of this earth. There's no amount of money. No quality of health. That can fulfill the deepest need of our life. Or that can fix the brokenness of our life. You've only provided one solution. And his name is Jesus. The one who is the perfect lamb of God. Who died on a cross for our sins. To bear the guilt of our sin to die under the wrath of God because of our sin, to take our place, and now through faith in him, 
We can be reborn. Born of God. A child of God. Set down a new path and a path that leads, in, leads to eternity with you forever in heaven. Lord, if there's somebody that doesn't know that salvation, I pray that you draw them to yourself today. And God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would fix our eyes on Jesus. When we're going through these trials and the struggles of life, when the circumstances seem too great to bear, I pray that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, meaning he's the one who got us this far. He's the one who'll carry us home. Lord, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.